of the Chairman, and Sister Karen, and brethren and sisters. Once again we are gathered together on a very joyous occasion as we witness the birth of yet another into the family of God. And you, Karen, at this particular time, stand in a very, very blessed position. Just having put on the sin-covering garment of the Lord Jesus Christ, you now have a relationship with the Father in the heavens that is completely uninterrupted by those past sins and wrong things that may have been committed. It is indeed a very blessed position to be in. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and at verse 22, he says, But now, being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit under holiness and the end everlasting life. And the Apostle there speaks of that position into which Karen now stands, being freed from, from sin, being brought into a position of righteousness with God, she's been made a servant of God, that she might in her life bring forth fruit under holiness and ultimately ending in the gift of immortality when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Having been brought into that position, she must now endeavour, together with every one of us, to use her time profitably in her master's service, to spend that time for the honour and glory of the one who has called her and bestowed these great blessings upon her, so that when she stands before the Lord Jesus Christ, he might find in her life those fruits that he desires, and being well pleased therewith, he might grant that gift of everlasting life. In verses 4 and 5 of this sixth chapter of Romans, the Apostle says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, but like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And so the Apostle speaks of that act of which we have witnessed this evening as a death and burial. It is significant that in verse 4 he says we are buried with him. Because you know the burial is the final act in, in a person's life, or it's beyond their life, but the final act in their memory. They live their life, they die, they are buried and everything is finished. It's finality when the burial takes place. And the old Adam, with which every one of us was born, when we're baptised into Christ, is both dead and buried and forgotten. And so by baptism we're, we're buried with the Lord Jesus Christ into his death. The reason being that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, it was the Father's power that raised him from the dead. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. And that newness of life can only be lived by the Father's power working in us. The old man is dead and buried. And the Father's power must work in us so that we might walk in newness of life. He says in verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. The word planted together, authorities tell us, one word in the Greek, symphytos, it means grown along with, united with. The word exactly expresses the process by which a grass becomes united with the life of a tree. And when a grass, of course it's a branch out of one tree, 
that's grafted into another and it becomes united with the, with, with the, the root of that tree into which it is grafted. And by baptism we, says the Apostle Paul, are planted together in the likeness of his death so that we might be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And so you see that principle of newness of life that we must draw from the Father is that life that we see exhibited in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must endeavour to draw upon that life that we might live according to the principles that we see exhibited in him. You know, the very act of being put to death and buried with the Lord Jesus Christ is an act of faith. You see, Karen has come and been buried with the Lord Jesus Christ tonight because she believes the testimony of God's word. God's word has operated upon her mind and brought her to identify herself with a crucified Saviour, to identify herself with the Lord Jesus Christ and to put the old Adam to death. And that's an act of faith. But it's just as much an act of faith that will cause us to walk in newness of life. I think it's in the epistle, epistle to the Ephesians. The Apostle Paul exhorts us that we should, have, uh, we should let Christ dwell in our hearts by faith. And it does take faith, brothers and sisters, to allow the Lord Jesus Christ to dwell in our hearts. Because the Lord Jesus Christ in the days of his mortality stood for the principle of the crucifixion of flesh. He spurned the things of this world and chose those things that were pleasing to his Father. He was a man who was hated by this world to the point that they murdered him, they crucified him, to get rid of him. It takes faith to let such a man dwell in our hearts Both the baptism and the walking in newness of life is an act of faith. And of course, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But we have seen the evidence of that faith in our young sister this evening. And may it be, by the blessing of Almighty God, that that faith may grow and prosper, that she might manifest the character of the Lord Jesus Christ and be found well pleasing to him in the day of his return. But faith to be any use has to be put to the test. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the baptism of John, as we saw a couple of classes ago. The Lord Jesus Christ strode out from Nazareth down into the Jordan Valley and was baptised at the hand of John. And he set forth on his ministry, a ministry that was going to end in his death, but a ministry that would would work the salvation of all who would be identified with him. But no sooner had the Lord Jesus Christ been baptised and we saw that the heaven opened, the voice proclaimed him to be the beloved Son of God in whom God was well pleased, And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended and rested upon him. From that point Luke digressed and went into the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he takes up the story again in chapter 4 and verse 1. And Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We find that in the wilderness the Lord Jesus Christ was put to the test. He met the tempter after a certain period of time and his faith was put to the test. Of course, as we said, faith that is not proved and tested is of little value. And just as the Lord Jesus Christ had to have that faith put to the test, no doubt our new sister will have her faith tested in various ways also. Now we read in the, we read the, the, the account that we read in Luke chapter 4 
of the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ is recorded likewise in the Gospel of Matthew and it is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. But it is Luke, I believe, opening his address, it is Luke that points out that Christ was full of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one of the three that mentioned it in that particular way in relation to the temptation. Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had just been bestowed upon him without measure, as John chapter 3 and verse 34 tells us. It was bestowed upon him at the time of his baptism. The Lord Jesus Christ was the recipient of this power that had just been bestowed upon him. And we read there straight away in Luke that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And when we go to Matthew, we find it recorded in just very slightly different terms. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, we read, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So that where Luke just says he was led, Matthew says he was led up. And the Greek words actually mean precisely that. In Luke it means led, in Matthew it means led up. So it signifies that as the Lord Jesus Christ left the Jordan, that he ascended from a lower to a higher place. That's what the word in Matthew really signifies. <coughs> the ascending from a lower to a higher place. So possibly the Lord Jesus Christ, climbing up from the Jordan Valley, went up into the wilderness. Now Mark records it in different words again. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 12, we read verses 10 and 11 have spoken to us of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ verse 12 says and immediately and that word means immediately or straightway so Mark records that the Lord is baptised that the Holy Spirit is bestowed upon him and straightway immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness that word driveth is a word which means, according to Bullinger, to throw out, to cast out with the idea of force. So we see that the Lord Jesus Christ was impelled. He was forced into the wilderness. And he was there for 40 days. Why was the Lord Jesus Christ forced into the wilderness? Why was it that the Spirit in, in, in Matthew and Luke says that the Spirit led him into the wilderness? We need to try and conjure up a little picture of the circumstances in our mind. The baptism had just taken place. The Lord Jesus Christ had come up out of the water. The heavens were rent open and the voice from heaven proclaimed, This is my Son the Beloved in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descended upon him and abode upon him. And John, who had done the baptising, had received the sign that had been predicted. He now knew that Jesus was the Messiah. There was not a shadow of doubt about it. The revelation from heaven had revealed it. And there was the Messiah of Israel. Now if the Lord Jesus Christ had remained around John, John would have been revealing him on every hand as the Messiah of Israel. Here he is, he's manifested at last. And people would have come flocking from all over the place but have been pressing round the Lord Jesus Christ, making all sorts of demands upon him, wanting to make him a king and so on and so forth. And at that particular moment of time, that was the last thing in the world the Lord wanted. He didn't want that at that particular time and neither was it Yahweh's intention that he should be thrust before the nation in that particular way. So immediately coming up out of the waters of baptism, the Lord Jesus Christ sought the solitude of the wilderness. Immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to get him away from the public eye. You know, for nearly six weeks, all that 
John could say was, I know the Messiah's here. I baptised him. I heard the voice from heaven. I saw the Spirit descend upon him. But I don't know where he is. He's gone. And nobody could find him. And the Lord was secreted away in the wilderness, out of the public eye, for this particular period of time. You know, Brother Robert Roberts, when writing upon this particular aspect in Nazareth Revisited, he points out that it was necessary for a period of transition to take place from the village life of Nazareth to the rigours of the uh, ministry as, as, um, uh, that, that he was about to take off. We quote just one sentence from Nazareth Revisited, page 90. Brother Roberts writes, it was necessary for him to have a season of majestic and heart-enlarging solitude before entering upon his journey through the multitudes of Israel as the name-bearer of Yahweh. And that's the way that Brother Roberts expresses it. He needed a season of majestic and heart-enlarging solitude before entering upon his journey. And that's why we believe the Lord Jesus Christ sought the solitude of the wilderness. The Lord Jesus Christ had just buried the old man in the waters of baptism. He was there now to, to, to manifest a completely new life. Not that the Lord had to manifest any new life, but a new life that was drawn, that had its source in Yahweh, not in the flesh. That new life had its source in Yahweh and could only be drawn from Yahweh. And having now set out upon his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, wanted that solitude away from everybody else in which he could give himself completely to communion with his Father in preparation for that ministry that lie before him. He knew where the source of that new life would come from. He knew there was no strength in himself to meet the challenge of his ministry. He knew that he, out of his own self, his own flesh, could never manifest a perfect life. He saw that that newness of life must come from Yahweh. And he sought the solitude of the wilderness. And he sought communion with his God. Now we learn as Matthew, uh, as, uh, well, as, as Mark, Matthew and Luke all tell us, that the Lord Jesus Christ was in the wilderness for 40 days. Mark 1.13 says, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days. Luke chapter 4 verse 2 and Matthew chapter 4 likewise tell us that the Lord was in the wilderness for 40 days. And 40 of course is a number of great significance in the word of God. We're all aware of many instances where the number 40 occurs. Moses when he fled from Egypt was in exile for 40 years. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. David reigned upon Yahweh's throne over Israel for 40 years. Solomon reigned for 40 years. Bringing it down to Dave, we find that the rain in the times of the flood descended for 40 days. Moses was up in Mount Sinai on a couple of occasions for 40 days. The spies sought the land for 40 days. Elijah, having been fed by the angels, went for 40 days into the wilderness. Jesus, after his resurrection, was 40 days before his ascension to heaven. He spent 40 days in the wilderness. And so 40 is a number that repeatedly appears in the word of God. And as we know, 40 stands for probation, or a period of preparation. That's what a probation is, a period of preparation. And usually that preparation was associated with affliction, such as Israel in the wilderness, Moses out tending Jethro's sheep, and so on and so forth. With a period of preparation through affliction. And here we find the Lord Jesus Christ, 40 days in the wilderness. And I believe the scriptures direct us, direct our attention to show that this 40 days is particularly connected with the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness. 
You see, Israel is spoken of as Yahweh's son. His firstborn son, his firstborn national son. And we go back to the time when he brought them out of Egypt and there was the birth of Israel's national son. And he spent 40 years in the wilderness. Here we're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved individual son of Yahweh. You see, from his birth of the, uh, of the waters of Jordan, he spends 40 days in the wilderness. The parallel of Israel being brought out of Egypt. Now you see, Mark here in chapter 1 and verse 13 says, he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. See, Mark draws attention to the fact that he was out in the wilderness with the wild beasts. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, we find the very chapter in which Yahweh is outlining his purpose in taking Israel into the wilderness. He points out that Israel likewise was in the wilderness with the wild beasts. Verse 15. Who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint. So just as Israel was there in the wilderness with fiery serpents and scorpions so the Lord Jesus Christ was in the wilderness with the wild beasts. In Matthew chapter 4 and and verse 2 we read and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights he was afterward a hunger. And the very statement 40 days and 40 nights Take our mind back to Exodus chapter 34 and verse 28 where we are told that Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. And so the scripture seems to direct our attention back to that period of time that Israel spent in the wilderness. Indeed, you know, as we come to look at the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know on every occasion the Lord Jesus Christ answered the tempter from the book of Deuteronomy. It's just as if the Lord Jesus Christ saw saw the parallel and he saw his 40 days in that wilderness as the parallel of Israel's 40 days in the wilderness. And he quotes every time from the book of Deuteronomy which was written at the end of Israel's period, probation of 40 years in that wilderness. Now, Luke and Matthew both tell us that during this period of 40 days, the Lord Jesus Christ had no food. I think Luke just tells us that he he, he didn't have anything to eat. But Matthew, in uh, in verse 2 there, he says, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and whilst that word fasted really just means to abstain from food, Nevertheless, authorities tell us that that is a word with a religious significance. And it signifies a religious fast. And I believe it shows us the very purpose for which the Lord Jesus Christ went into the wilderness at that time. He went there to give himself over to a period of total consecration to Yahweh. You see, he'd just been baptised in the Jordan. he just heard the proclamation from heaven. He just received the bestowal of the Holy Spirit and there in his power now he was the recipient of greater power than any mortal man has probably ever possessed before. He had the Holy Spirit without measure and he sought the mind-enlarging solitude of the wilderness that he might total, give, give himself in total consecration to his Father, that he might give himself to prayer, to study, to meditation, totally and completely in preparation for the challenge that awaited him when he stepped forth out of that wilderness. And for 40 days the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself totally in that way. You know, others before before him had given themselves to, to Yahweh in that way. Daniel chapter 10 reveals that when Daniel knew that the time of the restoration of Jerusalem was drawing nigh, 
He gave himself for three weeks without food that he might might uh, supplicate Yahweh that the time of restoration might be accomplished. Moses was without food 40 days and 40 nights when he went into Mount Sinai. Elijah went 40 days and fo- without food after the angels had fed him. And so on and so forth. And here we find the Lord Jesus Christ giving himself in this way so totally into communion with his Father that food and other necessities of life became totally neglected. And it was at the end of this period of time that the tempter, we're told, came unto him. Matthew says he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was afterward a hunger. And when the tempter came to him, he said, so on and so forth. As we look at the records which relate to this temptation or testing of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find here in verse 3 the the tempter is referred to as the tempter. We find in the book of Luke he is referred to as the devil. And we find that in the book of Mark he is referred to as Satan. So he's Satan, he's the devil and he's the tempter. Is referred to in all of those ways. The word tempter literally means the tempting one. So Matthew 4 verse 3 refers to the tempting one, came to him. The word devil, of course, as we would all be well aware, is the word diabolos. It means a, a false accuser. The first false accuser we have, we have re, uh, recorded in the word of God was the serpent in the Garden of Eden who falsely accused Yahweh. He said to Eve, as God said, you shall not eat of every fruit of the tree. And he suggested to Eve that God had said that for an ulterior motive. He falsely accused Yahweh. He called Yahweh a liar. Yahweh said, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll die. The serpent said, you won't die. There was the first false accuser. And of course down through the ages that serpent power has represented human nature. But human nature can manifest itself in various ways. It can manifest itself within ourselves. But it can manifest itself in others who oppose the truth and the will of Yahweh. And we know that the word is used in that way in many times in the word of God. Likewise, the word Satan. It means an adversary. And we know from the usage in the word of God a Satan can be a good Satan or a bad Satan. It just means an adversary. And in this case, of course, it was a bad one. It was an adversary of the Son of God who was endeavouring to live a life of righteousness. But who or what was this tempter? of which we read in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3. Well, I believe, like Brother Thomas did and Brother Roberts did, that this tempter was a person external to the Lord himself. I don't believe that this temptation came from the Lord's own nature that he bore within. I believe the temptation came from an individual external to himself. Brother Robert Roberts recognised that. Again, in the little sentence that we've quoted from Nazareth Revisited, page 85, speaking of the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says the whole narrative of the temptation shows it was a temptation of the latter sort. A temptation by an external tempter, a person but not the popular Satan. And when we look at the way in which the tempter reasons, the doubt that he tried to sow in the mind of the Lord, the way that he wrongly used scripture and wrested scripture from its its original context, it is quite obvious that the Lord Jesus Christ could never have thought in those ways. Had those thoughts been found in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he could have been convicted of sin and he would not have been the redeemer of mankind. I don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ ever for one moment in the whole span of his life ever wrongly 
uh, applied scripture, have arrested scripture out of its context. And though we cannot accept that those that these uh, reasonings that we read of here would take place in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it was a person external to himself who came along to the Lord Jesus Christ at that time. So it raises the question, who was he then? Well, we can't pinpoint the exact identity of the tempter because we're not told. But I believe that he was a representative of the priesthood. It could even have been the high priest himself, but certainly a representative of the priesthood. Because he was, when we look at the things that he spoke and the propositions he put to the Lord Jesus Christ, he was obviously a person who was a firm holder of the Jewish concept of the Messiah. You see, for six weeks, John down in the Jordan Valley had been saying, well, the Messiah is manifested in our midst but I don't know where he is. And for six weeks the attention of the people would have been aroused and people would have been looking for him. We learn from John chapter 1 that the priests did send a delegation to John inquiring of the work of John himself whether he were the Messiah. And we read in John chapter 1 and verse 19 and this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. Uh, and, and they asked him, Why then baptizest thou? And he goes on to show how uh, that the purpose was for the manifestation of the Messiah. And now the Messiah had been manifested. And the attention of the people would be aroused to that fact. And I believe that the, just as the priests sent a delegation down to, to John, inquiring of who he was. The priests having made inquiry and having found that the Lord Jesus Christ had been baptised of John, they set about to seek him out and probably providentially at the end of the 40 days the tempter was led to where the Lord Jesus Christ was and they found him. I believe he was a representative of the priesthood. I believe he was one who held the Jewish concept of the Messiah. And I believe he was coming to the Messiah to put a proposition to him. You see, let me just explain what I mean for a moment. Just very briefly, we find in the, in the book of Matthew that the first temptation was, the tempter came to him and said, make these stones bread. The Lord was obviously under extreme pressure. He was very, very hungry at the time. But the tempter came to him and said, Command that these stones be made bread. Now, when we go over to the book of Gospel of John, we find in John chapter 6, this occasion where the day previously the Lord Jesus Christ had, had fed the 5,000. And they'd come running after him, seeking him the next day. Now, in, in the in verse 29 we read, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And, and, uh, and Jesus goes on and said, it wasn't Moses that gave you that bread, but my Father in heaven. Because here were people looking for the coming of the Messiah. They said, give us a sign that we might know. It is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And that was the sign they were seeking. You know, and if the Lord Jesus Christ had come as a man who was going to provide all the necessities of life, they'd have readily accepted him. 
and they'd have rallied behind him from Dan to Beersheba. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ came to feed them on the true bread, spiritual bread, that they didn't perceive. But you see, the tempter came to the Lord Jesus Christ with a proposition that he might turn stones into bread. See, manifest yourself as the prophet light under Moses. Moses who fed them manna in the wilderness. Turn these stones into bread. And look, all the people will accept you as the Messiah. You know, he goes on and the second temptation, the second proposition that he puts, he takes him uh, up to the pinnacle of the temple, as it's recorded in Matthew, and he says, cast yourself down because it is written that the angels, uh, uh, he's given his angels charge over the etc, etc. Why should the devil take him in this way to the pinnacle of the temple? I don't believe he did it literally, but he did it in his mind. Well, you know, Edeshine writes concerning the Jewish expectations of that time. He says the two great expectations of his people, that Messiah was to head Israel from the sanctuary of the temple and that all kingdoms of the world were to be subject to him. Those were the two expectations they had concerning the Messiah, that the Messiah was going to come to the temple in Jerusalem, that he was going to manifest himself there in the temple, rally Israel round him and then issue forth to establish the kingdom of God on earth then. So you see the tempter says, you come up to the temple, you cast yourself down in the eyes of all the people. You do a dramatic display there. Manifest yourself as the Messiah before the eyes of the people. And look, they'll rally around you. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ came to perform signs, but not signs of that manner. And finally, in the order it's presented in Matthew, the devil says to him, bow down and worship me, and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. That's why I believe that he was a representative of the priesthood. You see, the priesthood in Jerusalem was waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for the coming of a mighty king and united with that king and the king united with that priesthood. They thought they would establish the kingdom of God then because the Lord Jesus Christ did that. But that was the proposition that the, the tempter put to the Lord Jesus Christ. He appealed to him to manifest himself in power then so they might grasp the kingdom of God at that time in that particular way. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ was equal to the situation. The Lord Jesus Christ knew his scriptures too well to be fooled by that. And so then we believe that the tempter was a representative of the priesthood in Jerusalem. He sought out the Lord Jesus Christ, he came to him and he put that particular proposition to him. Now as we look at these, the records of these temptations, particularly Matthew and Luke, we find there is a little deviation. We find that whilst Matthew presents the order of the temptations in the order that we've just presented them, First the bread, second the pinnacle of the temple, third all kingdoms of the world. In Luke chapter 4, we find it's presented in a different order. We find in, in Luke chapter 4, it's the bread first, then it's the temptation concerning all the kingdoms of the world, and then it's the temptation to cast himself down from the temple. Why should it be different? I believe that as we come as we sat down before with the comparison of the Gospels, we believe the, the object that the writers were, had in mind differed somewhat. I believe in Matthew, who is writing primarily for Jews, he presents it in that order because that was the order in which the Jews were looking for the manifestation of their Messiah. Luke presented in a slightly different order because Luke is presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as a man. You know, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 13 we read, <coughs> And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. 
The dialogue renders that slightly differently. It says, um, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him for a season. I believe that Luke is showing that in this temptation, the Lord was tempted in all points like as we are. Now the Apostle John says in uh, his first epistle, chapter 2, speaking of all that is in the world, he says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Now all uh, sin and all trials and temptations fall into one of those three brackets. You know, and that's the very order, I believe, that the Lord Jesus, that, that, that Luke presents the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, the temptation to turn stones into bread when he was extremely hungry. It was an appeal to the lust of the flesh. Then there was the temptation to, to grasp at all the kingdoms of the world, all that he could see before his eyes. There was the lust of the eye. And then there was the temptation to show himself, to make a, a, a dramatic display before the people at the temple, the pride of life. And so you see, Luke is showing us that in this temptation the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted in each of those points. He was tempted in all points like as we are. Of course, there's many lusts of the flesh that the Lord wasn't subjected to at that particular time or the devil didn't try and incite him at that particular time. But he did incite that, but the turning of stones to bread at a time when a person was extremely hungry would come into that category. And the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ overcame that or refuted that is the pattern upon which we can refute the lusts of the flesh, whatever they might be. You see, the lust of the eye, the, the, the causing of all the kingdoms of the world to pass before him in a moment of time. The lust of the eye. There's many lusts of the eye that we're subject to that are different to that. But nevertheless, the way that the Lord dealt with that particular aspect of the trial is an example for those who come into similar circumstances. And likewise, the final one, the pride of life. And so, this temptation tried the Lord in all points as we are. So, with us, those things are usually internal. With the Lord, it was all in the mouth of an external tempter. You see, really, each of these trials was directed at Christ's absolute submission to the will of his Father. It was really a matter of would he assert himself now or would he submit to his father's will? The tempter came to him and trying to goad him on to use the power he had. Assert yourself, manifest yourself as the son of God. But you see, it was a question of whether the Lord would assert himself then or submit to his father's will. You know, if the tempter was, as we have suggested, a representative of the priesthood, he would stand there as a representative of the nation of Israel. And there, secluded away in the wilderness, wherever it might have been, were two sons of God. There was the representative of Israel's national son. And there was Yahweh's only beloved son. There were the two sons of God. There was the representative of the nation of Israel, the rebellious, disobedient son. The son that continually wanted to assert himself and throw off the principle of submission to his father's will. And there was the beloved son of God who stood for the principle of total submission to his father's will. You know, we take the first temptation the temptation to turn the stones into bread. The Lord Jesus Christ was under extreme circumstances. He'd been 40 days without food. Have you ever been 40 days without food? I know I haven't. I have at times been short periods without food and I've felt rather hungry. But I've never been 40 days without food. 
The Lord Jesus Christ had gone 40 days without food. And along comes a person to him and says, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. You know, brethren and sisters, really, the thrust of that temptation didn't revolve around the bread at all. And the Lord Jesus Christ recognised that. It, re- it revolved around what it is to be a son of God. You see, the tempter said, well, if you're the son of God, you've got special powers. Use your powers, use your position, use your authority. But you see, is that the position of a true son? The position of a true son of God is a position of submission to his father's will. It's a position of trust and reliance upon his father. It's a position of seeking always to give honour and glory to the Father. That was the point of question. You see, the Lord was under extreme circumstances. His body would have been crying out for food. The suggestion of the tempter, uh, had he dwelt upon it, would inevitably have had to have, had to have, uh, 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 have had its appeal. So don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ did dwell upon it for a moment of time. Because I, mean, I believe his mind was so full of the word of God that he never even slipped into the position of being tempted to turn those stones into bread. His mind was just saturated in the word of God, I believe. I believe that that is brought out by the answer that he gave. He says, if thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it may be bread. But Jesus answered him and said, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And he's quoting from the 8th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. When you go back to the 8th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, we see, I believe, the power of the Lord's answer. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Yahweh is summarising the whole of his purpose in taking Israel into the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8. If we had time, we'd read the whole chapter. But we haven't time, so we must just look at a few verses. Verse 1. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which Yahweh thy Elohim led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee, and he suffered thee to hunger, and he fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of Yahweh doth man live. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell thee forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so Yahweh thy Elohim chasteneth thee. If thou be the Son of God, command these stones be made bread. Look, if you're a son of God, you'll consider that, Yah- that, 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 that uh, as a man chasteneth his son, so Yahweh chasteneth thee. You see, here was the, 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 the principle, the, the tempter was telling him to throw off the principle of submission to the Father and to assert himself. But the Lord's mind, after 40 days in that wilderness, just as Israel were 40 days, in, 40 years in that wilderness, his mind was just saturated, I believe, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he saw that the principle of submission and obedience were the qualities of a true son. You know, 40 days, brothers and sisters, without bread. 40 days without food. And the answer he gives, obedience and submission are more important than bread. 
Will you feel comfortable, brothers and sisters, when you stand beside that man? Because I know I won't. That was the answer he gave. The qualities of a true son, submission and obedience, are more important than dreams. Now we go down to verses 15 and 16 of this chapter. Who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end now there was the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness suffering extreme hunger at that time the principle in his mind was that that, that he must humble himself before before his father and he knew that his father was seeking to do him good at his latter end. And therefore he would not use the power of that spirit to provide his own need. Look at verse 17. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember Yahweh thy Elohim, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto his fathers as it is at this day. You see, had the Lord Jesus Christ used that power to provide bread, he may fall, have fallen into the pit of saying, by my power and by my might have I provided my need. But the Lord Jesus Christ was a true son of God. He had perfect trust and reliance in his father. He knew that his father would provide every need when, the, when, when his father saw fit to do so. And he manifested himself there in the wilderness as a true son of God. You know, bread, brethren and sisters, is the basic necessity of life. But really it could stand as a symbol of everything that this life might involve. Without bread, there's no life at all. It could stand as a symbol of everything that this life might, might, might involve. The question is, brethren and sisters, do you and I recognise submission to our Father, obedience to our Father in heaven, as more important than bread? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the Lord Jesus Christ wouldn't use the power that was invested in him to provide his own needs because he had perfect trust and reliance in his heavenly Father to meet every need. You see, the tempter said, if thou be the Son of God, the very answer that he gave proves, brethren and sisters, that he was the Son of God. May it be, brothers and sisters, that every one of us, together with our new sister this evening, might be found to be true sons and daughters of God at that time when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth.